VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday VinePair podcast. Guys, what's going on? And gals. And Hello. everyone else <laughs> out there in audio land. I think my voice sounds really good today. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think it does, too. <laughs> yeah, I've got, you know, like a little bit of that head coldy thing, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. <gasps> now playing the hits. Like Delilah. <laughs> Yeah, what happened to Delilah? She's still on. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> True story. We discussed, uh, Caitlin and I discussed naming our daughter instead of Lila, naming her Delilah. And she was like, I can't because of the radio personality. And I had no idea who that was. So, <gasps> Really? Delilah. I did not. Oh, I was familiar with the uh, biblical figure, which I could understand also people having some objections to. But uh, <laughs> no, the, the, radio, the radio host, uh, just not outside my world. Missed it. Missed mm-hmm. it. Clearly. Well, but in terms of uh, the written word, what you've been reading on our site, Zach, that tickled your fancy. Well, you know, nothing is going to get my attention more than a piece about fortified wines because, you know, <laughs> certified wine nerd here for sure. Uh, so John Sumner's wrote a piece uh, called Fortified Wines Are Cool Again. So why are there regions in crisis? And I think, you know, this is a, a well-written piece kind of looks at in particular Sherry Port and Madeira which have some similar reasons for their struggles, some, you know, individual reasons in each region why they are struggling as well. But I think the the takeaway, one of the takeaways is that, and I think we're seeing this, and it's kind of in a way a big part of our conversation about wine in a lot of ways of late, is wine by its nature is the le- in a lot of ways the least nimble of the kind of beverage alcohol categories because it just takes so long to make meaningful changes to production in a region. I mean, vines take a while to grow, switching kind of production styles and even, you know, kind of winemaking techniques can be difficult, especially on a large scale. And so, you know, even if these regions had perfect foresight on what the market was going to ask of them, it's very difficult for them to necessarily pivot in a timely fashion. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing is, you know, these regions are not ignorant to the changing wine landscape, but even when they are trying to pivot, it just is a slow process. It doesn't happen quickly. And so, you know, it's unfortunate. I think Joanna and I have talked about you know, sort of fortified wines and whether they are at all relevant to today's drinker. And, you know, I mean, there are places and times for these things. And I think what, you know, one of the big takeaways from this piece is that those places and times are getting both fewer and also they're just changing location, right? You know, Sherry now has a bigger place in cocktail programs than it does in wine programs. And that's an, a, a thing that the, you know, industry as a whole is having to adapt to. So it's, you know, it was a really interesting piece. Yeah, I like that piece too. What about you, Joanna? A lot of great stuff on the site, but I wanted to uh, talk about a recent episode of Cocktail College, actually. Ooh. I'm a little behind on my Cocktail College, but I did listen to the recent episode on the martini with Dave Wondrich, which I thought, I thought was really great. He's just a wealth of knowledge about cocktails and spirits and cocktail history, and I just thought that was a really wonderful episode. Um I I encourage everyone to listen to it. I I think Dave, I told Tim to kind of tabulate how many times his name has come up in the the series so far, Mm -hmm. because he comes up in almost every episode. But yeah, great episode. Um, And I have a few more to catch up on. But that's that's my pick for this week. What about you, Adam? Well, I did think that it was very 
instructive that we were trying to help people tip at Vegas bars. Me too. You know? I like that piece. I like too. that one. I, I, I don't. I'm not. I don't like Vegas. So. Me neither. I'm not a big casino person. Yeah, so. not not for me. But uh, you know, if it's it's for you, good. You know, congratulations. Uh, good job. <laughs> but yeah, not for me. I've also, you know, I feel like the Ask Joanna columns have been really good recently. <laughs> I'm, you know, I don't even need to take it back. You're doing a great job. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, even like your your advice on tipping based on discounted drinks, like mm-hmm. just really well thought. Out. Zach takes issue with my stance sometimes. Really? Mm-hmm. I think just once, notably. What was the stance? <laughs> what was the stance that time? I think it was. Oh, about- yeah, that you shouldn't take to Instagram to shit on a restaurant. Yeah, you said you shouldn't. Yeah, I said you should sometimes. Mm, interesting. <laughs> Whatever we, we can, folks can go listen to that. Uh, I like that. Yeah, that episode. <laughs> anyways, anyways, I'm not. I wasn't here for it, so I'm not going to give me a give you guys my opinion. But like, what I'm going to talk <laughs> about is ice, ice, baby. We're going to talk about ice today. Uh, we're talking about ice specifically around cocktails. Sure. And uh, the reason we wanted to talk about ice today is because on our travels of recent, Joanna and I, um, we have been with another well-known cocktail writer, Aaron Goldfarb. And, and we've been just commenting on ice. And the reason we've been commenting on ice is there is this idea, especially in New York, that, like, your ice program basically says everything anyone needs to know about your bar. If you take your ice seriously, then your bar must be serious. If you don't take your ice seriously, your bar must not be serious. You must not have good cocktails. And... You know, in New York, bars go to great lengths to pay for cold draft, and they, you know, make sure that each ice is the, you know, perfect ice for each drink, right? So, like, you would never see an old-fashioned with pebble ice. You would only see it with a big, clear rock. Meanwhile, like, the youths <laughs> really like pebble ice, right? right? They, they only think that a drink is good with pebble ice. Uh, that's like a big trend now on TikTok. Like all of the cocktails basically include pebble ice when made by the Gen Zers. Uh, there's also this growing trend of people on TikTok who are trying to claim that the big rocks glasses that have been popular. I mean, the big rocks have been popularized by um, you know cocktail culture, especially this you know turn of the. 2000s whatever cocktail culture is actually ripping you off and there have been all these videos and then like pulling the ice cube out and showing how little of liquid is in the cup which is so stupid guys that's of course that's how things work <laughs> um but i guess we came to a different conclusion which is i think so what joanna and i observed zach and this is to really kick off our conversation is that in a lot of other cities that we went to in our travels over the last month we went to cocktail bars that people talk about that have been written about by best in the city. Yep. Other publications, et cetera. Us people say these are the best cocktail bars in their region, in their city, et cetera. And most of them have shit ice programs or don't have ice or programs. don't have ice programs at all. Right. And for a set for, for a minute, you know, Joanna and I were like, well, it must be that they either can't get cold draft, which is possible. Sure. Or it's too labor intensive to make, you know, clear ice and the right kind of cues reach things, which is also possible. But then we came to a different conclusion, I feel like, right, Joanna, which is I, we don't think these places actually give a shit <laughs> because they've realized that their consumers don't right. care. The guests don't care. And that why would you go to this insane expense of making sure you have the perfect ice for your drinks when this community doesn't care? 
And the only reason that it happens in New York or probably Seattle and Chicago, et cetera, is not because the consumer cares there either. It's because they're trying to flex to their other bartender <laughs> friends in the industry. Hmm. And so I kind of feel like maybe the industry as a whole is just taking ice way too fucking seriously. I think that we've been conditioned to care. I personally feel Me too. conditioned to care and about ice. And I feel ice. like a snob about it. Me too. <laughs> I was like, look at this gas station ice. Remember when I did that? Yeah. And it was the, just ice was, ice. the ice was not good. The ice was not good, but this place was a celebrated bar. Right. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Zach? I think it's really interesting. You know, I, I've thought about this occasionally. I remember one of the first instances as a relatively young professional where I had this like, wow, you can care about ice like this was at a bar in um, Portland, Oregon, which I think has since closed. But one of the things they had was like a giant like block of ice that sat behind the bar and someone like your bartender would like carve a piece off for certain drinks and it was like illuminated in a like un like underlit so you could kind of watch them do it, it was it was very striking i don't That's know really that it cool. was like particularly great for the actual quality but it was definitely a part of the show and i do think that this is one of those interesting areas where i think in a way the part of the ice program that the consumer sees i.e the ice that's in their drink when they get it whether it's the aforementioned large piece of ice or even just normal cold draft or whatever cubes or pebble ice is the part that the drinker tends to take notice of. And yet I think if you talk to bartenders and you know, this is something actually to mention cocktail college again, that comes up a lot in those conversations is that for bartenders, often the more important piece of it is like, what is the ice you're using to make the drink like and how consistent is it? And there, I think that taking your ice program somewhat seriously is kind of important because there's a meaningful difference in the amount of dilution you will get depending on the yeah. kind of ice you use, how cold it is, has it started to melt in part, that stuff can make a big difference. And, you know, does it matter entirely to the finished cocktail? I, the beholder kind of thing, some people are going to notice the amount of dilution more. And certainly if it's a drink you order regularly, you might see that more than you would with a one-off. But I do think that, you know, Bars have, and maybe it's more prevalent in New York and in Seattle and other kind of big cities, but bars have for a long time been trying to distinguish their cocktails and their cocktail program by the visual presentation. And ice can absolutely be a big part of that. I mean, it's now maybe just de rigueur to get a large ice cube. But when those mm -hmm. first started popping up 15 years ago, 20 years ago in cocktails, people were blown away by them. They didn't realize that you could have a giant sphere of or cube of ice in your cocktail. And it was like, wow, I could have my you know, old fashioned and have it look like a really classy drink as opposed to maybe a slightly less classy drink. So I think, I think taking that part of it somewhat seriously makes sense to me, you know, getting the ice right in the finished drink, because that is the thing that the guest is going to interact with. And that's the thing they're going to respond to. But for me personally, honestly, I care a little bit more about it in the, the ice that they're going to make the drink with is mm -hmm. more important to me in terms of you know, consistency and quality of the cocktail. Hmm. That's interesting. I yeah. do think, though, that there is there is an unfortunate, like, it tips quickly into, like, yeah, a sort of almost, you know, parody of, cock of bartending when it's, like, someone's getting calipers out and measuring the exact size of the cube or they're, like, you know, boiling it for the eighth time to get it perfectly clear. Like, there is a point where, you know, setting aside cost even, which is a, obviously a big part of this, but we're just it is an insane amount of labor to put into something that is just not that important. Um, you know, especially things like that, like, is this ice cube 
you know, perfectly clear? Does it have a tiny chip? Is it exactly the right size? Like, you know, how that, that stuff to me feels like, you know, now you're doing it for excessive yeah, yeah. for yourself. Well, what I, I can't remember if we discussed this, Adam, but you know, I think for these bars to be regarded as like the best bars locally seems fine. And that's great for them. Right. But I think that in order to be considered one of the best bars in the world or whatever, the continent that they do need to, unfortunately do need to have a good ice program. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason for that is because it kind of says that you're trying to be on the same plane as these other places. Um, and I think ICE has become this signal in the same way that, you know, we want to see certain things. Michelin wants to see certain things for you to have a certain amount, to be, even be considered for a certain amount of stars, right? right? You can't even be considered for two or three stars unless you have a pastry, a pastry chef and a pastry program, right? Like, you can't. You can be considered for one and have, like, someone making your mom's chocolate cake recipe as the dessert, but you cannot do that if you want to go higher. You have to have a certain amount of specific specialized staff on the floor, all that kind of stuff. And those are the signals of like the kind of experience you're supposed to expect. And I think that is very similar with the ICE program, right? It's expected that if you, if we are to take you seriously on a national or global letter level as a cocktail bar that is sort of worth paying attention to, we need you to take your ice seriously. And that is the sh- that shows us then that you might also take your cocktails more seriously. I do think, though, that the that then idea has spread out to a lot of cocktail nerds who then think that anyone that doesn't take their ice seriously doesn't have serious drinks. Mm-hmm. And I think that those people may just be much more concerned with their serious margins. <laughs> Than caring enough about about yeah. being on a list, right? Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, there are a lot of really top restaurants I've been to that don't have serious ice programs, right? That actually aren't doing the large clear cubes and things. They're not investing in that because they're investing in a lot of other things with the food, et cetera. They're hoping maybe you're going to get into their wine program, their glassware, et cetera. And like their ice is fine and they don't really care. And they're not. That's not going to be whether or not they wind up on the list they want to wind up on, and they're not eligible for best top fifty bars or whatever, anyways. So what do they care? Right. I think it's also important to note that there is an element of cost and accessibility that has to be considered here. I mean, you think about like a cold draft machine; it's an expensive investment yeah. for a bar or restaurant. It's also a somewhat um, you know, sort of large piece of equipment to fit into your space, which, you know, depending on where you are and the size of your restaurant or bar footprint may be difficult to do. And what you don't have in a lot of other places that you do have in, you know, places like New York is you don't have a sort of third party vendor of ice that will bring, you know, deliver ice daily that basically Mm -hmm. just, you know, has these machines set up in some warehouse and produces a bunch of it and delivers it to bars all over the place. Cause that's how a lot of it goes down in some of these big cities where again, they don't necessarily have the money or the footprint to invest in one of these machines, but they do want the ice. And so, you know, think about that. You think about the big cubes and kind of the, again, the time commitment, you got to have a lot of freezer space, especially if you're going through a lot of them. Like Mm -hmm. this was something that I dealt with a lot when I bartended, which was, you know, just staying on top of consumer demand for that kind of product, which isn't like, you can't just like, you know, in the middle of service, be like, oh shit, we're out of big cubes. Let's make some more. Like (laughs) you can have some more for tomorrow generally. Uh, But so it, it is a thing where, you know, you can kind of understand a bar making a, or even a, a bar as a part of a restaurant making a sort of calculated decision of like, 
yeah, maybe some of our guests would respond to this. Maybe we would get a little bit more credit for our cocktail program. But at the same time, yeah, we have to weigh that against the cost and against the time and against just the, the sort of complexity of integrating this into our uh, beverage program. And, you know, I think the last piece of it is quality ice is only meaningful if the drinks are good. And I think it's much more often in my experience that you get sometimes a cocktail served with really nice ice. That's just kind of like an okay drink. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like, I would just so much rather have a really quality drink on, you know, whatever marginal ice, because the ice is the part of the drink that's like, you know, in the end, to me, not the most important piece. And I do think that that is something that, you know, it's like it, it's almost like the opposite to me. It's like sometimes if the bar is showing off all of these, you know, it's got these, you know, all this different glassware and all this different ice. And it's like, we have all these touches. I'm almost like, okay, well, what are you trying to cover up for? Right. Hmm. Cause in a way, if you make a great drink, you should kind of be able to serve it. However, and that mm-hmm. quality of the drink should come through pretty unblemished by the drink, the vessel or the uh, ice, at least in most cases. Yeah, I agree with that. I also just think like to your earlier point that it's not like I don't think anybody ever writes about (laughs) a bar's ice program, right? Like when they're covering a bar. So it's not like people aren't like we we happily went to these bars and enjoyed their drinks. Mm -hmm. I don't think we would. I personally maybe wouldn't return not just because of their ice program, but but it's like it's not stopping people from going there. Right, that they don't have a good ice program. No, I don't think so at all. I think most people don't even care. Yeah, like, like it's not preventing them from. So why why invest in and have the invest those resources in something that's kind of not necessary for the success of your business? Yeah, I think the only reason that you are is to, you know, basically have a have a, a measuring contest against other bars, right? right? To basically, it's it's a lot for the industry itself right yeah. and and look the industries who makes these lists we talked about as well so they're the ones you're trying to impress it's not for the general consumer the general consumer i don't think has any care besides as zach said like one of the first times you see it being impressed by it right but now i don't think the majority of general consumers get an old-fashioned that either comes on you know a big rock or like we had in atlanta went to a, a celebrated restaurant and the old fashioned was served the the smoky old fashioned the what the toasted, was toasted old fashioned yeah. that I had and Ethan had was served over like I don't want to call it cubed ice but it was kind of cubed ice yeah, right yeah cubes. cubed ice mm-hmm. like multiple cubes like that you would just take the sort of the ice scoop scoop and pull into the ice bucket and dump into the glass and that's how and that's what they served the old fashioned over and mm-hmm. I think that most people don't care it was still garnished nicely it was still like eighteen dollars yeah. And most people don't care. They didn't. They would not have expected, as I did. I was like, "This is kind of weird. This isn't supposed to be a super nice restaurant." They made this cocktail table side. Where's my Where's my large cube? And then Ethan was like, "You sound like a snob." Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, I, I think yeah, I think the majority of consumers don't care. So they so as a restaurateur, you have to make those decisions all the time of like, well, then who am I doing it for? Am I doing it for me? Am I doing it for my peers? And how much of that cost am I willing to then eat into mm-hmm. of my own profits? And cold draft is expensive. Yeah. You know, it's either time consuming or just expensive. Yeah. I also think there's a piece of this that's like, that it hadn't really occurred to me until you were describing your guys' experience, which is 
you also run into this issue in like restaurants that have a bar program or even maybe some slightly larger bars where you have so much so many different staff members who might be preparing a drink in yeah. the course of a week say that anything that requires a degree of like really sort of precision i guess as a bar program can become a point of you know, weakness, I guess is how I'd put it. And mm-hmm. you might think it's a, you know, kind of obvious to a bartender that, you know, the toasted old fashioned or whatever should be served over a large cube, but maybe that person who made the drink was like, you know, they didn't, they didn't catch the memo or they didn't get it. Or they're like, ah, we, I don't know where they are. And I, I got to get this drink out. Here's some just regular <laughs> well ice, etc. And like, again, in a very kind of focused, specialized cocktail bar where you have a bunch of people who are really dedicated and who are, you know, kind of obsessive about their craft, then giving those people the tools to make sure that their drink is that extra, whatever, 2% better makes a certain kind of sense. You know, it also makes sense. Like we were talking about, if you're aiming for certain kinds of accolades and you're doing certain things as a bar program, but the bigger your program gets, the more kind of all encompassing it becomes. And the more people who are involved in making drinks, you know, it's just harder to kind of Mm -hmm. put all of those really fine touches on a program without worrying that they're going to be, you know, just kind of either ignored or, or just done incorrectly. I mean, I remember this actually from a bar I worked at that, you know, the person who was creating the cocktail program at the time went, we had the, you know, training on the new drinks for the list. And the person went on and on about how for this one cocktail, I can't even remember which one it was, you know, you were supposed to like, you know, it's supposed to be like a flamed orange peel was the garnish, right? So you're supposed to kind of like express the oils, use a lighter or whatever to light a little bit on fire and then it goes in the drink. And they were just like adamant that that was the, you know, the right way to do it. And, you know, the next day at service, like the other bartender I was working with was like just not doing that. And mm-hmm. they were just like, I don't have time. Like, I don't know what my lighter <laughs> is, whatever. And you just kind of sometimes are like, well, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like you can have all the best intentions as the person creating the cocktail program. You can even in some cases provide the proper tools. If the people who are making the drinks are not always going to use them properly or at all, then, you know, it's one thing with that, which is just like an element to the garnish that's going to be indistinguishable to most drinkers. But if, you know, you're talking about investing a lot of money in fancy ice and some of your bar staff is just going to be like too, you know, uh, whether they're just kind of too indifferent to the quality of the product or too busy or just overwhelmed or who knows what, then again, it's like all the more reason not to invest in it. You just decide to spend your money elsewhere or turn whatever you would have spent in on fancy ice into money that goes into your pocket or whatever. Yeah. I guess final question. Why is Gen Z obsessed with pebble ice? <laughs> yeah. But they want every drink over with pebble ice. I don't know. That part. Do you just think really they think it photographs better? I don't think it does photograph better. Neither do I. I think clear ice photographs better. Me too. Well, I think the last thing, sorry, the last thing I wanted to say about this is also just in a place like New York where the cocktails are sometimes like $25. Yeah. I feel like the expect the expectation has to be that. The, that it's good ice. Mm. But, and obviously, like, good ice factors into the cost of that yeah, drink. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like it just, it's like a little, a little s- vicious cycle there. Right. You good ice or you bad ice. Like, well, you, <laughs> it better be good ice if you're charging me $25 for it. Exactly. Uh, it's so annoying. I think we're a little brats, though. I'm a little brat about it. Me too. Me too. I like being a brat, though. <laughs> I'm like... What are you doing? This is too expensive. Give me my clear ice. Take it. Send it back. Send it back. back. (laughs) Let us know what you think about clear ice. Hit us up at podcast.divinepair.com. 
And uh, until then, see you next week. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Shrino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.